Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate spoiler special on Unknown, the new thriller starring Liam Neeson. Joining me here in the Slate studio is Mr. John Swansburg. Hello, John. Hello. Who is Slate's culture editor and a frequent spoiler companion, and uh, who, at the very last minute, I was very happy you agreed to, to come see Unknown with me and spoil it. Yeah, well, it was a great invitation to get. I was excited to see it. I was excited that you were excited, because it's, <laughs> it's not a good time of year for movies, no. and, and uh, you know there are a lot of really wan offerings out there. But based on the fact that Liam Neeson had made this thriller taken a couple of years ago that was that was good in this sort of mediocre yet highly enjoyable way, I, just, I had some kind of feeling that this might be a little bit like Taken. And I wouldn't say that it's quite as enjoyable as Taken, but... It was pretty great, no? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed okay, it. Okay, great is maybe well, pushing it, but, <laughs> yeah, but not, it was a fun let's night. Let's not at the bleach movies. the word "great" of its meaning, but it was uh, <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. It, it's um, I, I think you say this in, in your review, but it's it's sort of like born light, uh, Jason, or uh, born identity light, uh, and indeed the plot is sort of in broad strokes very similar to the the plot of the born identity in that Liam Neeson sort of. Uh, well, I guess we have to give away a lot to explain how it's the uh, how the similarities. But should we? Yeah, I think we should start summarizing and, and start spoiling. And I should also add that this turned out to be the ideal kind of candidate for a spoiler special because there's a huge twist. Yeah, there's right? a totally huge twist, and there's a lot of plot holes left by the twist. When we originally dreamed up the spoiler special idea, it was sort of that this would be the place where you have that conversation that you have coming out right. of a movie where you say, but how could the guy have known about the thing <laughs> on the train before that? And this is exactly that kind it's of It's definitely movie. that kind of movie. And in fact, I think there are certain things in this movie that are not only unexplained, but they're a little cheap. There, there are some tricks at the beginning of the movie um, that are, I think, meant to make you think one thing when, in fact, the truth is something is something else. And I think we should maybe talk about those, too. Right. Okay. Right. So as we begin, right, yes. we have Liam Neeson and January Jones. A married couple on a plane heading for Berlin. Yes. And uh, we quickly become aware through some somewhat heavy-handed exposition that he's a botanist who's going to a biotechnology summit right. in Berlin. And uh, and she's just along for the ride. So they get to uh, their hotel, luxury ho- five-star hotel in, in Berlin. They have the Eisenhower suite. The Eisenhower suite. Do they end up staying there, though? Isn't there some sort of problem with it? Oh, wait. She does end up staying yeah. there. Right. So as she's checking in, suddenly, for some reason we don't understand, Liam Neeson has forgotten something and he gets back in a cab without well, he's telling forgotten, her. He's forgotten his briefcase. Right, but he never tells her that, right? Uh, he doesn't, he, for some reason, he does not come into the hotel. She's checking in and he does not bother to come into the hotel to say, honey, I forgot my briefcase. I'm going to go back to the airport and try to find it, which is a little bit of a weird plot contrivance. But anyway, he does, uh, he flags a cab. I guess he's like so worried about getting the briefcase. Um, and he he tells the cab driver to take him post haste to the airport, and she's the, his cab driver, um, who's quite comely. Uh, you, you notice in the rearview mirror, and that makes you think something might be afoot. She starts driving very aggressively back to the airport, and uh, in so doing, gets in a car accident, drives the car off of a bridge into a river. Uh, the cabbie uh, manages to save the life of Liam Neeson, who's unconscious. Turns goes into a coma for four days, wakes up, and um, doesn't. He remembers who he is, sort of can't quite remember why, like why he's in Berlin, um, but is a little bit um, turned around. Right. He doesn't have amnesia, but he has like sort of fogginess, the kind of brain fogginess you would have when coming out of a coma. Right. 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 And uh, against his doctor's advice, he has no ID on him. He was found with no ID. Right. So against his doctor's advice, he checks himself out of the hospital and goes back to the hotel looking for his wife. And then that's when things really start to cook. And I think this is the best part of the movie. The next 15 or 20 minutes or so after this, suddenly he's in this weird world where 
he's not Martin Harris anymore. Right. He kind of shows up at the hotel looking pretty worse for the wear, having you know gone and fallen into, into a river, been in a car accident, been at the hospital for a few days. And he sort of explains to the head of security at the hotel, look, I don't have any ID, but I'm this big wig botanist. <laughs> I guess he's you know, as, a big, <laughs> as big a deal botanist as you can be. And uh, I'm here for this conference. Like, you know, uh, the cocktail party that's going on right now, I'm invited to. I don't have my invitation, but, you know, there's my wife. Uh, you know, she'll be able to confirm my identity. And there's a kind of a great moment where you only see the the supposed wife from the back. And the, I, I sort of thought the reveal was going to be when you got to the the blonde woman who's supposed to be January Jones that she was going to turn around and it wasn't going to be her. But she turns around and it is her. But she looks at Liam Neeson and says, "I don't know this man. I have no idea who he is." And he's he's complete Martin Harris, the Neeson character, is completely confused. You know, honey, why are you? I'm what? What are you talking about? And she's like, "This is not my husband. This guy is deranged." And then she produces another man who says, I am Martin Harris. I don't know who this guy is. He's an imposter. So all of a sudden the viewer is sort of like, well, what the heck is going on here? This is really this is really strange. You kind of share the um, confused uh, feelings of, of Neeson. Yeah, and there's this great kind of existential dis- dislocation when the other guy steps in, played by Aidan Quinn, right? right? Martin Harris B is played by, by Aidan Quinn. And, uh, and there's this kind of sense of well, have have we been watching the movie that we thought we were watching? Right? Yeah, exactly. And we were like, you know, you're de- you're genuinely curious, you know, what's what's afoot here. So, the the next stretch of the movie, is, I guess, follows uh, Martin Harris A. Uh, Liam Neeson as he tries to kind of piece together what intarnation is is going on. And there's some good stuff in this in this section too. Like he's beating the streets in Berlin. I didn't get to mention this in 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 the review, but this movie really makes Berlin look extremely cool. Yeah, totally. Uh, it really makes good use of the of the Berlin setting and uh and it's he, not particularly he, picturesque. I mean, it makes it look kind of gritty and it yeah. just it, it makes use of a lot of different kinds of spaces. It doesn't feel like it's unrolling in a picture postcard kind of vision of Berlin. Right, and he has, you know, he has a, a few uh euros to his name. He has no wallet, he has no ID, so he's sort of He can't even find a hotel room. Without it, without a passport or an ID. Exactly, and there was a kind of a nice scene where he goes into like a flop house in some in some kind of like uh, combat zone uh, area, and even there, uh, the the proprietor of this of this flop house won't uh, give him a room without an ID. She's you know like the police are gonna uh, are gonna come, so he's he's sort of up a creek, um, and he doesn't know whether he's deluded uh, and and you know what he doesn't know what to do. So right, he keeps going back also to this doctor who was a nice character I thought at the hospital, yeah. this German doctor who, keep, who keeps telling him, "I'm telling you, your your experience." You know, post-operative dementia or whatever. He has a complete medical explanation for what's happening. Right. But we know that that's probably not true. That there's some kind of espionage thing going on. Yeah, because we there's just enough at the beginning during the flight in to convince the viewer that Martin Harris, the Martin Harris A, is th- you know he, he has grounds for believing that he is the man who he says he is. And um, you know, so I, I think that you know as we're as we're going along, we we believe that he thinks. What he thinks is true, but we all, we're we're confounded. Who, you know what what is the story here? So he ends up tracking down Diane Kruger um, at this this uh, restaurant where she also works. But Diane she, Kruger is the taxi driver. I don't know. Sorry, if I, yeah, yeah, Diane Kruger plays the taxi driver, right? The beautiful, the very improbably beautiful taxi driver right. who turns out to be a Bosnian refugee um, who's who's making her way in Berlin illegally. We both have vocal problems today. Yeah. Yours involving granola shards in your throat. <laughs> Mine is just a plain old cough. It's true. So 
So she um, she sort of joins up with him, and that's I think a little bit emotionally unmotivated. We quite we don't quite know why she tr- at first she distrusts him, but she very quickly suddenly starts to trust him and aid him and basically be his right hand girl and all this you know um, spy seeking. Right, and his attempt to figure out what's going on. I mean, they were only together for a short time before these thugs try to try to come after um, Martin Harris, and at that point she sort of I think feels like well I'm kind of I'm kind of into this at this point. You know, she is. Uh, They've killed one of her – these thugs show up and kill one of her friends and attempt to kill her and attempt to kill Martin Harris. So all of a sudden she's sort of on the run with him. So it makes some sense that that at that point she would say, "Okay, I'm going to cast my lot with this this guy. Although you could also imagine a different woman saying, I was a perfectly happy Bosnian refugee cab driver in Germany before this guy got in my car. All of a sudden he shows up and people start dying around me. Um, At least the refugee angle does explain why she wouldn't go to the police, right? So it gives her some reason to cast her lot with him. Yeah, she has a shared uh, concern of not going to the authorities. So so that makes sense. So let's get to the twist because I want to talk about why and how the the twist makes sense or doesn't. So okay. it's pretty far into the movie though. A lot of, of thug rumbles have happened by this point. Right. He's chased by thug Martin Harris is chased by thugs in like a bunch of different places in a hospital, through it, there's a car chase, there's a there's some sort of cat and mouse on the subway. Uh, so that that makes up a, bi- a big portion of the center of the movie. And they're pretty decent chases, I would say, as yeah. chases go. I mean it's not it's not one of those big blow em up movies where the fight scenes are boring, right? No, I no, mean, it's like they're they're B plus chases, I think. Um, so we should. There's one other important character we should mention: um, a nurse uh, at the at the hospital where he, the aforementioned doctor, uh, worked, g- gives him at one point uh, a business card for a friend of hers who's a private investigator. Uh, and so at a certain point, uh, Martin Harris is sort of at his wit's end. He doesn't 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 know the lay of the land. Doesn't know how to, he's going to find out what's going on. And he sort of in desperation goes to this. Uh, investigator that he doesn't know anything about other than he has this guy's business card and and this uh, investigator played by Bruno Gans is a kind of fascinating character he's a former member of the Stasi uh, and he's he's very old and he takes an interest in Martin Harris's case again it's like slightly far-fetched that this investigator would believe anything that Martin Harris says because Martin Harris has no corroborating evidence but they kind of play that off well you know they, they make the Gans character is like seen it all in the Stasi you kind of get a sense and he knows when a guy's uh, desperate and telling a, a, a far-fetched truth as opposed to an absurd lie. And, and there's sort of a neat, neat little line about that. And so Gons is on the case and uh, that's important. I forget why. <laughs> well, just because they've got at least one person who, who believes them, right? Who's right. Sort of helping track. And because Gons is on the case, Frank Langella ends up getting called into the scene because Frank right. Langella plays uh, an old friend of Martin Harris A, Liam Neeson, back in the States, who um, who Martin Harris produces as, this guy's going to know who I am. If you can get in touch with this guy, Rodney Cole, he will corroborate my identity. Right. And then by a set of circumstances that we don't understand at the time, Rodney Cole comes to Germany too. He's also going to some conference. I guess <laughs> right. Botany's really buzzing in Germany it's in these huge. days. And, uh, and so he drops by Bruno Ganz's place, um, ostensibly to help out Martin Harris. But then now here's where we can start spoiling. And this is actually probably my single favorite scene in the movie when Langella arrives at Bruno Gans's apartment, if only because they're both just such masters of making everything seem really cool and important yeah. that they do. That scene is totally great. It's worth the price of admission. They're, they're sort of... And the great thing is that this, you know, they have this wonderful meeting and you know Liam Neeson and Diane Kruger, like they're they're off screen. It's just these two guys having a conversation about Martin Harris. Um, and we what we learn in that scene. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that um, Bruno Gans's character realizes uh, that Frank Langella's character is part of is part of some kind of shadowy shadowy international, international spy 
uh, like super assassin ring. Super assassin ring, yeah. And he sort of knows this, and um, they have a sort of pretty frank conversation about the the work that they both do. And there's a kind of uh, wonderful, like re- uh, mutual respect between these two, uh, you know. Uh, Cold blooded killers, and uh, I compared this in my review to a scene from a Graham Greene novel. I mean, it's not the, the, the dialogue isn't written at that level, but right. but somehow the combination of their performances and just the history that, that's brought to it, the fact that you know East German history comes into this thing, yeah, um, it gives that scene this kind of false depth that really doesn't actually right. belong in the movie. I should also mention that I think the production design of Bruno Gans's apartment is fantastic. Totally great. It's this all kind this- of like it's like a like a altar to to East Germany in the seventies. Yeah, exactly. Right? He has all these commendations. And uh, that he got as, as a, st- a member of the Stasi, and you get the sense that this guy, even though he's kind to Martin Harris, is probably a profoundly bad guy <laughs> in the you know in East German history. Um, so anyway, and, and then and then adding to that Graham Greene feel, Bruno Gans uh, is preparing himself a, a, a cup of coffee, and he puts w- into it what looks like a packet of sugar, but it turns out to be cyanide. He, he sort of kills himself, knowing. That it, it's, I guess what we're supposed to understand is that he does that because it's a more honorable way for an old spy to go out than to, to force Frank Langella to have to go through the motions of killing him. Right. And Langella sort of says – he has, sort of has this kind of wonderful encomium to um, – to, to Gans' character later where he's like, he, you know, he died very well. He died, he died well. very, very well. And I can't say the same for you. He then <laughs> proceeds to say to the person he's about to try to kill. Right. So anyway, that, that's how we get to know Langella. We get to know that he's a bad guy. Uh, when when Martin Harris runs into him uh, a little bit later in the movie, Harris is still convinced that he's his friend. But uh, I guess we should just let the cat out of the bag here. What Once Langella tracks down Martin Harris – he makes it clear pretty quickly that he intends to kill Martin Harris, and he kind of has this great sort of you know villain moment where before he, before I kill you, allow me to allow me ninety <laughs> seconds of exposition <laughs> in which I will explain the entire movie. And we come to find out that Martin Harris, the botanist, was merely a cover that was created by this uh, international spy ring. They so had, both Martin Harris A and Martin Harris B are completely different people who just work for the spy ring. Exactly. So the spy ring had been hired. We don't know by whom to uh, kill a this other botanist who – this is my favorite detail of the movie. Totally ridiculous. Yeah, this, this is the big MacGuffin and it is, is so awesomely dull. Yeah, a, a botanist has created a new strain of corn that is re- drought resistant and resistant to pesticide, like to pests and can flourish in the desert. It's like it's like super corn. This guy's invented super corn and his intent is to uh, – he's been funded by the Saudi prince and with the Saudi prince's money – He's developed Supercorn, and Supercorn is going to basically eliminate world hunger, and he intends to release the um, genetic – I guess the genetic makeup of this Supercorn as a uh, – kind of like a free download He's like to the open world. sourcing Supercorn. He's open sourcing Supercorn. Super and I can – there's like some – there's some vague suggestion at the end of the movie that it's like big – Agriculture has maybe hired these assassins because, like, they say, you know, on the TV, they bother to say, oh, you know, once the super corn is announced, the um, the agriculture, big agriculture company's stocks are down fourteen percent. So you're like, well, maybe it was big agriculture who wanted this guy silenced before he released super corn into the world. Anyway, so that's that's the guy who the super assassins want to kill is is the corn uh, developer. but what's completely improbable about this development, or I guess just unsatisfying, improbable is fine. Of course it's going to be sure. improbable, right? But what's, but what's unsatisfying about it is that we ourselves don't know what to do with the character that Liam Neeson is once he stops being Martin Harris. I right. Mean, so we once, should, maybe we should becomes, clarify that. Like, so, so what we realize is that this guy, Martin Harris, when he comes to in the hospital, he 
remembers that he's Martin Harris, but it turns out he's actually not Martin Harris. Martin Harris doesn't exist. He's he's basically taken on his cover. He thinks his identity is his cover, that this person he's been pretending to be, I guess for some time, but not for that long. And so... So one, far, so good. But, but the guy that he used to be before we knew him, before the movie started, is apparently this, this bad guy, this evil right, he's, super he's a gun assassin. for hire, yeah. Right. And so... The fact that we've been, you know, sort of loving him and rooting for him this whole movie because he's embodied by Liam Neeson, it just felt like a little bit of a cheat to me. And I think that there needed to be more Jason Bourne style of a of a moral crisis for the character at that right. moment, so that we can accompany it. We can accompany him on his journey to becoming the guy who saves Supercorn. Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, in the end, we should be, you know, we should uh, give him credit for saving Supercorn. And and um, Diane Kruger does say, you know, they have a, there's a throwaway line. Diane Kruger says. He sort of Martin Harris is saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe who I am." And she says, "Well, all that matters is what you do now, not what you did then." Which sort of, I guess, it's a is, slight nod toward like an existential challenge, a moral right, challenge, right? Right. I mean, but, it, you know, if the guy has murdered thirty, in, you know, innocent botanists in the past, and now he he does the right thing, does that does that absolve him of those uh, former botany homicides? I mean, I guess that's a question that <laughs> hangs in the air above this movie. <laughs> But uh, you it's know, the moral the, arithmetic of yeah, Supercorn, right? But for the purposes of this movie, as you say, Liam Neeson is is behaved only um, admirably on screen uh, up until that point, and I think we're sort of meant to believe, well, this is a this is a man with a, a good soul who you know must have gotten into the super assassin business for the wrong reasons before, and now he's a good guy, and and sure enough, he does. He, he um, once he once he finds out who he is, he doesn't shy away from. Uh, saving the day, he he goes back to the hotel where the planned assassination of the botanist is going to happen, and he foils the pl- the plot of his uh, former colleagues. Yeah, it's, and it's a fairly tense, decently done kind of ending when he when he when he foils the bombing. But I still sort of felt like the movie lost me in the last twenty minutes or however long it is after he he, he finds out that there is no Martin Harris. Yeah, and uh, and I think that was a fault not of of Liam Neeson in any way. In fact, he was the one thing that kept me in the movie, but but of the writing. I mean, I really do like Liam Neeson as an action hero. I think he's in a cool phase of his his career right now. Yeah, I, I thought I thought he was great. Uh, I thought he was very winning, and uh, I, I was with the movie the whole way. It was very entertaining. It's, it does get a little ridiculous. The Supercorn thing, you know, it, it's like it didn't seem like it was uh, it, it was sort of a little too silly. Um, as There's a- also a big plot hole. I mean, not big, but annoying enough that I want to point it out in case people are listening to this who have seen yeah. the movie, which is there's one thing that happens that really a good script editor would have said this has to come out if he's not really Martin Harris. And that is that as the two of them, as January Jones and, and Liam Neeson are taking their initial cab ride. To the to the hotel, yeah. They act like husband and wife. There's this moment that they pass this photograph, this photography exhibit that becomes important later in the movie, and she says, "Oh, honey, you remember when we saw that in Chicago together?" And he says, "Ah, yes. I promise that we shall see her here in town. That that." Th- Exhibit here in town too, or whatever. Right, they meet have me this at one romantic on exchange. Saturday, yeah. Me, yeah, they actually make an appointment, and then that comes up later too. But the fact is that if it's true that they were just, as the movie is now contending, this this pair of hired assassins working together, posing as husband and wife, nobody's listening to them. The cab driver speaking another language, and they even make a point of saying, like, we don't know what he's saying. Right, and. There's not really any reason for them to put on the dog at that moment. So, I mean, that could have been staged just slightly differently, that they have that conversation in front of a baggage clerk or something like that to to, to not blow their cover. But instead, it was just an error. Yeah, and you know what also occurred to me? We were t- we talked a bit about that last night after the movie. We were both puzzled by that. And then – but we I'd forgotten and <laughs> only thought of it this morning. There are also 
several flashback scenes that um, Martin Harris has where he's having steamy shower sex with Jane Ray Jones, which I guess like could have happened. Like maybe that was like a little, <laughs> that was like a little, you know, inter like office. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's how super spies, you know, do it. There's not a lot of HR probably interference. Yeah, you're uh, right. There were some memories that we learned later are fake planted memories, right? But but right. then but there's also these these shower sex scenes which. I don't know. I mean, maybe those were somehow just fantasies or something. Too. I mean, essentially, the, the the premise that the movie wants you to believe, which is kind of absurd, is that when that car goes into the water, his mind is destroyed in this very precise way where right. he forgets what his job was, right? Yeah. But he, but remembers his cover as himself. Yeah, which is kind of a neat – like if I were – you know, if I were in the pitch meeting, like I, I could see latching on to that. But it's a little, but it's a little bit hard to pull off. And maybe they just decided that uh, the movie would be easier to sell if there were some steamy January Jones shower scenes. So they said, you know, let's throw this in there and, you know. Well, as, as we wrap, I wanted to ask you about January Jones because I don't watch Mad Men, which I know disqualifies me from saying anything <laughs> about cult- contemporary culture whatsoever. Hardly. But, um, but, but you've written about Mad Men and been part of the Mad Men Club. Where do you stand on the can January Jones act question? Uh, I'm, I'm like on record as being something of a January Jones detractor. I think that she actually is works pretty well on Mad Men. She has certain limitations and there have been times I've been frustrated with her, although often I'm frustrated more with her character than with her acting on Mad Men. I think there's a certain woodenness to her performance that actually can work to her benefit uh, when she's on that show. Here, she was just sort of um, window dressing, it felt to me. She Her, her role in this movie reminded me of uh, John Hamm's performance in the town, it was sort of like where you know I was watching this this char- this actor who I know so well from this uh, from this show that I watch so uh, religiously, and they f- they sort of feel like they're doing something slightly different, but they're not. They seem like out- they seem out of place to me because I know them so much from from Mad Men. I don't, did, did she do anything? She's not really given much to work with in this. Yeah, movie. No, she's. I mean, if I had no idea who she was, I would probably just think, why was she hired? She she's, right. she looks great, but she can't act. But it does kind of work with this character who's this very ambiguous person. Right, who you right. can't tell whether she's faking it. You can't tell when she says "I love you, honey" if she really loves him or if she's been brainwashed. I mean, at a certain point of the movie, she has to play it that she's either been brainwashed, she's evil and conspiring against him, right, or he's crazy. Right. And I think the blankness that she has, that kind of Kim Novak esque <laughs> yeah. woodenness, kind of works the way that Kim Novak's woodenness is so perfect. And yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it, that, in that way, it does sort of benefit. And that, and that's similarly, like the, the her shortcomings can can end up being uh, to working to her benefit sometimes. I think that happens in Mad Men too. But she's. Not not, like, I wouldn't tell anyone to go see the movie because January Jones is so great at it. Right. Even a Mad Men fan. Okay. Well, John, thanks so much for coming to see this with me, and thanks for coming in to record this spoiler. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Our producer is Tage Jensen. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. <laughs>